Hello, robots. Our long-awaited return to the realm of podcasting is finally upon you. Uh, this is Remedial Studies. My name is Rachel, along with my beautiful co-host, Hannah. Hello! Today, we are going to be discussing um, a duo of books by YA author Sarah J. Mass. Uh, a Court of Thorns and Roses and its uh, immediate sequel, A Court of Mist and Fury. So it's been a while, robots, so we might be a little rusty, but believe me, we got uh, some good things to talk about today. Will the takes be scalding hot? Maybe. We don't know yet. We're going to just need to jump right into it because we're talking about a significantly longer piece of media than we usually do. So, Hannah, would you like to have a stab at summarizing the first book we're talking about? Yes. So, uh, A Court of Thorns and Roses um, is about Feyre, who is a poor village girl, uh, and she is 19. I think it's important to know that she's above the age of consent in the United States. Yes. uh, Due to the nature of this book. (laughs) And she... Um, she hunts to provide for her family, and she's their sole source of income, and this causes a lot of tension between, uh, her sisters and herself and her father, uh, who cannot provide for the family because he has a leg injury or, you know, he has an old leg injury, and they've kind of fallen from grace. They used to be a wealthy merchant family, their mother died, uh, she got sick, and then her father lost the family fortune, and uh, now they live in a hovel. Uh, so the book opens on this scene where Feyre is hunting in the, these wintry woods, and she ends up shooting this giant um, wolf as it pounces on the deer that she is hunting. And as you are with her in this wintry wood, you get this introduction to this uh, this political situation, I guess I'll call it, where there's um, a fae country in the north of the land, and there is a human country in the south of the land, and there's a wall that divides the two countries, and they're, um, the fae are universally hated by the humans. They're dangerous, they're monstrous, um, they have... They have pushed the humans into the southern part of the land several hundred years ago, and uh, they have not had contact since, and they're divided by this magical wall that keeps them separate. And it's basically like, you know, the fae the and their powers have sort of drifted into the mist, and it's not really clear um, what's what the actual situation uh, is going on there. And Feyre has reason to believe that this wolf might be a fairy, but she just sort of is like, it's fine, (laughs) and shoots it in the eye. (sighs) She takes the animal pelts to the village the next day, and that's how she makes her money. And then that night, the next day, uh, a fey beast basically explodes into her cottage and is like, you killed a fairy because the wolf, of course was a fairy you know that it had yes the reader you know that if this book is gonna go anywhere that that (laughs) that that (laughs) you're like okay Feyre but like it's a it's a fairy you know as a reader like it's like we're we're in chapter two Feyre (laughs) this needs to go somewhere (laughs) right so it's like okay well she shot a fairy what's gonna happen next and what happens next is that she ends up um uh, the the fairy comes in and is like, okay, you killed my best guard or whatever, so now you have to come live on my estate. It's a life for a life. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to be merciful, but you have to come back and live with me and my fancy estate, all of Beauty and the Beast, because this is a Beauty and the Beast retelling. Uh, so she agrees to go back um, to basically spare her family. Beauty and the Beast proceeds to happen. That is literally what I have written down in my notes. I mean, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. That is literally all that I wrote for what is probably... <laughs> the majority of the book? <laughs> the majority of the book. But, I mean, that's really all you need to know about that section for our purposes. Um, so she ends up getting sent back to her family without telling Tamlin that she loves him. Tamlin is the fate piece that exploded into her apartment. Um, 
And so after a few weeks, she's like, "Ah, oh, damn, I should probably go back and fix this. <laughs> this book is so ridiculous. I love it. Um, so she goes back to Tamlin's estate to find out it is too late. Uh, the curse, all of Beauty and the Beast that he's been under, uh, it's been called in. And the estate is in ruins, and no one is there except, helpfully, one last servant, who is Alice, who was basically um, Feyre's personal attendant, and so they have a closer relationship. And Alice helps um, Feyre prepare to go under the mountain. Uh, so there is an evil sorceress, Fey sorceress, who has cursed Tamlin because she really wants to, to bone Tamlin. He will not do that. And so she curses him, so they have had uh, masquerade masks attached to their face this whole time. And apparently that's supposed to make it hard to fall in love with him. And and so the, the exact specifications of the curse are that a woman who kills a fae with hate in her heart must fall in love with Tamlin by the end of, like, 47 years or something. And so because Vera didn't tell Tamlin that she loved him back... The curse gets called in, and Tamlin's court has to go live under the mountain with the evil sorceress fairy Amarantha, who is like running evilness over the land. She's the evil ruler of Prithia. She tricked everybody. Everything is terrible. Everything is awful. It's very White Witch from Narnia, actually. Yes, 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 yes. Very much so. I just put that together. Uh,. So she goes, and she says, you know, free, free Tamlin. And Amarantha goes, okay, let's play a game, essentially. And she says, you can complete, you can answer my riddle. And the second she said the riddle, I knew the answer, so there was, like, a little bit of problem with suspension of disbelief for me at that point, because I'm like, so the answer to the riddle is so obviously love, but Feyre has so little experience with love, I mm-hmm. think, that she just doesn't, like... She doesn't put it together. She can put it together. So, like, on second reread, I was kinder. I was kinder about the riddle. So she has to complete three trials or solve this riddle. So she can't solve the riddle, so she starts the three trials. So she completes the first trial under her own steam, but she's very injured. And as she waits for the next trial, she begins to show signs of infection. uh, And that... As you know, if you if you get a wound and it gets infected and there's not modern medical care, like, that's it. You're done. Um, so this fairy that we have met earlier, who is kind of Amarantha's... What is a good word? Consort? Paramour? Consort. Consort's an excellent word. So her consort shows up and is like, hey... Let's do a deal. I will help you in exchange for when all this is over, you have to spend one week a month with me and not your beloved. And Riasan plays this off as like, oh, I'm just this chaotic person who just wants to piss Tamlin off because we've got beef from a bajillion years ago and I just think it's funny to play with people. And that is how it's, like, portrayed at first. Yeah, I didn't buy that shit at all. The whole, <laughs> the whole first book, I'm like, yeah, sure, Reese. Whatever. Whatever you say. Carry on. So, long story short, she agrees. And he heals her. And she gets the iconic arm tattoo. Uh, because you find out later in Reese's court, they, maybe that's jumping too far ahead. No, you good, you good. But you find out that that's how they make deals. It, so in the second trial, Feyre has to solve another riddle, and she can't read. And Tamlin knew this and never made any moves to, like, help her learn to read. He just wrote her dirty limericks and said that he would write her letters for her. This is, I feel, important to note in light of the second book. Yes. So she she only she only survives because recent basically tells her the answer through his... Reason has cool psychic powers, essentially. And so through his cool psychic powers, he tells her the answer to the riddle. 
Um, and in between the trials, Rhysian is dressing Feyre up in these scanty outfits and has her body painted so that he can tell when people touch her. And she attends parties as his guest. And she also has to complete, like, magical chores at this juncture, like picking peas out of the ashes and mopping a floor with dirty water and such fairy tale things as that. Um, I know this because, like, they're not really important to the plot at all, but, like, there's just the, this weaving in of general fairy tale elements here. But on the last night before the final trial, she and Tamlin sneak off together and have to be interrupted and saved by Resand, who has to then pretend like he was the one who messed up Feyre's body paint. While Tamlin, like, sneaks off with his tail between his legs. And this is, like, a very important character moment, right? Like, Tamlin isn't trying, and this is what gets pointed out later, is Tamlin isn't trying to save Feyre or make anything better. He's just trying to sleep with her one last time. And, like, Rhysand is actually doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. It is a very revealing moment that is called back later. Uh, so in the final trial, this is like the hardest trial to read to. She has mm. to st- she has to stab three Fey in the heart, um, and the last Fey is Tamlin, and and this is like so traumatic for Feyre because, right? It's it's our it's the thing. It's a classic trolley problem. She can she can kill these three Fey and free the land, or. She cannot kill these three fey with her own hands, and the land remains under the power of Amarantha. So, the last fey is Tamlin. She's like, I can't do this. And then she thinks back really hard to everything that they've talked about, and she realizes, as part of the curse, Tamlin's heart has been turned to stone. So she stabs him in the chest. He'll be okay. She thinks. She is sure she is sure as hell hoping. <laughs> um, so she does it and it's true. But the curse isn't broken because Amarantha said that once she completes these three trials, she will um f- she she can free them. She has to free them, but whenever she wants. Like the the bargain didn't specify a timeline. Whereas if Pharaoh were to solve the riddle, if Pharaoh were to solve the riddle, it would immediately be dissolved. So um, everyone is pissed. Because <laughs> that's some classic fairy bullshit. Even the fairies are like, oh, come on. <laughs> but in the end, there's like some violence and Feyre ends up getting her neck broken in the resulting, you know, scuffle. And basically, as she lay dying on the floor, um, she answers the riddle. She finally understands after going through all this stuff. The answer to the riddle is love. And it immediately lifts the curse, and she's lying there dying, and basically what happens is that the high lords of the courts, that that's something I kind of skimmed over, but there are like seven-ish courts, and yeah, there's, there's a high seven lord. Courts. Yes, so there's a high lord over every one of them, and they all are like super powerful. They all go, and they give Feyre like a little kernel of their power. And it basically brings her back to life, but she's no longer a human. She is now made fey, and then she goes back to the spring court with Tamlin to presumably live happily ever after, uh, which we address this happily ever after in the second book, which Rachel is going to talk about. Yeah, so I, I can only give this book the highest compliment my ADHD ass brain can give it, where I actually read most of it. Like, I sat down and read most of it because the audiobook was going a bit slow for me. I was like, no, I need, I, this, I need to know. I need to put this in my brain. Um, but the, 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 first, the second book picks up about three-ish months after uh, Under the Mountain. Resand has not called in his deal. Tamlin has proposed, Feyre has accepted him, and uh, she is in the middle of sort of acclimatizing herself, not only to her new Fey body and her Fey powers, but like uh, the spring court, and all the courts, but she doesn't really know that yet, all the courts have started to rebuild themselves in the wake of Amarantha's defeat. And now that the masks have come off, 
it's starting to get a bit tense with Tamlin because he is, it's described in the book as protective. In the beginning, in the beginning, it's described as protective because he still has this weird cognitive dissonance where he doesn't understand. He neither doesn't understand or he doesn't want to understand that she can take care of herself in, in a way physically at least because now she's fey and she's strong or whatever but but he just he's refusing to address his own trauma which in turn means she has no one to talk to about what she's gone through and that is causing this rift between them that's not apparently deep enough to not get married until the fucking day of where (laughs) she she, and and she still has the tattoo she still has this weird mental bond with with resand and um, but he's he's he he's not answering. He's basically like new phone who dis to her for the first like few chapters of this book. And suddenly she's in this horrific dress in a ceremony that's not any way like she wants it to be. And they've had to go through this whole tie thing that she doesn't agree with. And Tamlin won't listen to her. And it's just all this stuff is compounding. And then she's walking down the aisle and she just thinks, please, someone save me from this. And who fucking waltzes in like a Phantom of the Opera understudy? <laughs> but Resand. And he literally appears in this like billowing cloud of night. And is like, so are you gonna come over or what? <laughs> and Tamlin is so pissed. He is so pissed. Cause he I, cause I think he 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 like has been against this whole deal since the beginning. And him and the high priestess that he's kind of like in cahoots with Ianthe about how the wedding's gonna go they both are like hey Feyre are you gonna you gonna finish the ceremony hey Feyre hey Feyre and she's just like I mean I got I gotta go guys what are you talking about and that's the first of that's the first month she had they actually do the deal where she has to go to the night court um and hang out for like a week but she doesn't actually go to the night court at first, she goes to Resan's house, essentially, where he starts to teach her to read. He actually is like, why? He's actually saying like, why are you letting him talk to you like that? Why are you letting him treat you like that? Like, not not to the point of necessarily telling her what to do, but just kind of being like a person to be like, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And considering Feyre does not have anybody like that at the spring court that's when the real seeds of discord start getting sowed where she goes back and forth and she's realizing oh he's putting me in a cage and he's trapping me the same way amarantha does and it it walks this fine line where it it, both in the narrative and i think with pharaoh personally it never necessarily places blame on tamlin for that it is clear in the narrative that it is wrong but it it isn't it it is still understandable to a degree. It's still not okay though, and eventually this escalates to a point where um, Tamlin tries to buy her this paint set, and all she wants to do is like leave the house for like an hour or something, like something relatively trivial. And he gets so mad that he like destroys this whole room, and like. It's just this turning point for her where she's just like, okay, this person is not who I thought they were. And I'm probably not who he thought I was. And all, all this all this stuff happens. And eventually, when he finally does physically trap her in the house, when he locks her in the house, she has this horrible panic attack. And this resand and this woman, who she has never met before, uh, come and get her and take her away where he's just like yeah no we're this is over this is done you are not terrorizing my friend anymore and uh that's when we start to meet the squad because we get to go to uh the actual night court there's two night courts Feyre finds out there's it's all about masks in this book um there's the court of nightmares which is the court amarantha modeled her court after um which is very bdsm it is uh, very kinky, and it's very classic, dark, underworld, everyone's out to get everyone else kind of thing. It's very cruel. It's very cold, and it's very cruel. And um, 
we learn over the course of this book that Rhysand keeps that court and keeps up the appearance of that court because the real night court, the court of dreams, which is the city of Valaris, is has been a secret for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's this outpost of, like, peace in the world. And he's, it's reiterated over the course of the novel where he's, he has done all these things and he lets people believe that he's this evil person to protect this city and to protect the people in this city. And that nothing to him is more important than that, which is not at all the kind of character we have been led to believe he is. Um, even in the first book, it was kind of near the end of the first book. We were, I, especially I was like, mm, something's going on there. But over the course of that section of the book where Feyre has essentially been like, yo, Tam, don't, don't come looking for me. Resand introduces her to a bunch of his friends. There's um, Moore, who is the Morrigan of legend or of Wiccan and the Divine. If you read that, we've done an episode who is his cousin there's Cassian and Azrael, who are Illyrian um, hunters, who are his best friends. Uh, we find out that he's half Illyrian, which I don't know if we knew that in the first book, but no. we learn that now. He's got he's got dope wings and, and all this all this other shit. Um, <laughs> there's Amryn, who is like the most ancient creature in the world, and she's the only one of her kind. And it's kind of hinted that she's from another dimension, and. Um, that is it. That 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 is the squad. Um, but it's this huge found family that has been intact and supporting each other for about five hundred years, and they just accept Feyre. They just accept her with 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 open arms, and it's it is that is not at all something that she is used to. Even with her own family, like she she loves her sisters, and but but it isn't the same. That 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 sort of almost unconditional acceptance that she receives over the course of the novel from these people is so completely new to her that she 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 doesn't almost know how to receive it for a while but through uh this this squad of people she learns to control um or begin to understand and control her powers when the high lords resurrected her that she was imparted with a power from each of the seven high lords and the power is specific to the court like there's this whole sequence of magic where when the high lord dies whoever his heir is um immediately receives that power upon death so she has a whole bunch of stuff she can do including part of Rhysand's power so they have this mental link that we're led to believe is just that but it's not and um (laughs) The overarching conflict beyond just Feyre in the book is that there is um, a threat to Prithian that is aiming to rise again with the help of capital C, the, the capital C cauldron, where they're trying to resurrect, I believe it was, I believe his name was Jurian. I read this book so quickly, y'all, but the, his name was Jurian, and he was this monstrous soldier during the first war with Highburn, which was 500 years ago. Highburn is trying to rise again. Amarantho was one of his generals, I believe. Yes. And when Feyre learns this, when Feyre learns that Amarantha is just one of many, many, many people, it's this horrifying realization of like, did what I do mean nothing? <laughs> the classic fairy tale blunder. Um, but... It comes out that she might be, also in classic fairy tale style, she might be the only person who can do anything because there is a way to nullify the cauldron's power if they get these artifacts. And one of the artifacts is a book that has been split into two um, sections. One of them is with the Summer Court and one of them is with this group of six mortal queens. So they go to the Summer Court. There's a heist, an act of kindness that she had in the beginning of the book comes back in a fortuitous way. And um, they get the first book and they realize it's in this ancient language that only Amran can read. And um, but they have to convince the mortal queens that the the second half of this book, that they deserve it. Because the mortal queens basically are like, "Uh, no, you're fairies and that shit don't fly and we don't trust you. (laughs) 
which is kind of fair. And especially because they don't trust Reese. Because the stories of the Night Court and its High Lord have spread from Prithian. And um, they're like, well, you're like a butcher and a torturer and you delight in other people's pain. So, like, no, we're not going to give you anything. There's a weird section. I say weird. There's a long section of, of internal conflict that leads up to them actually getting the second half of the book. And throughout the course of that conflict, come to find out. Feyre is Rhysand's mate, and mates are a big deal in Prithian. It, it is, it's kind of just what it sounds like, where it's this magical bond between two people where that is like, they are each other's person, and you can kind of be with somebody else, but it's, it's ultimately hollow, and it's not, it's not the same, and come to find out Resand in the classic style of, oh, hey, this was the real story that was going on the whole time that I didn't tell you about. He explains his motivations, pretty much everything he's done in the book. And I felt so validated. And, um, <laughs> but at the end of it, Feyre does accept him and she accepts that bond between them. And, um, and they have a lot of sex because she thirsty. And, uh, Finally, they get this second book after, like, uh, it, com- it comes out that uh, Reese had written many, many letters to these mortal queens. And some of them were basically just being like, you know, I love somebody who was once human. And, like, these are her people. And if they're her people, then they're my people. And I want to defend them. And so should you. And one of the queens actually, like, feels for him on this and just brings them the second half of the book after these other especially the older queen who kind of insinuates that one of them died because she was sympathetic to their cause um has said oh no we're not going to give it to you jump cut queens were whack they betrayed (laughs) them because they gave up resand gave up the knowledge of valaris so that they would trust him and they betrayed him and Highburn's forces, including the Adder, who was a major antagonist for Pharaoh in the first book, who she does end up killing, and it was so satisfying, comes back, attacks Valaris unsuccessfully, but now they're like, okay, we gotta go. We gotta go do something about this. So they decide to infiltrate Highburn's castle and um, nullify the cauldron. Unlike the original heist in this book, this goes horrifically wrong. Everything that could go wrong with this plan goes wrong. And at the end of the day, it comes out the queens were working against them. Tamlin was working against them. Jurian was actually resurrected before all this happened. It's the classic, like, oh, when did this happen? So when was this plan going to go into effect? Uh, 30 minutes ago. And (laughs) in order to get everyone out of alive, oh, Nesta and Elaine, her sisters are there, and they're turned into fairies, and Elaine is Lucian's mate. It's a fucking crazy end, end of this book, fam. Feyre makes a deal. Or she doesn't necessarily make a deal. She makes a deal to get out of a deal. But it's only the original deal that she has to be with Reese what one week out of the month. Because that's all Tamlin knows. They don't know that she's High Lady. Faux show. Because that everyone's like, oh shit, later. Um, uh, Tamlin asks the King of Highburn to break their mating bond. They try to do that. Feyre is now, like, acting this part of this person who has just gotten her memories back. And she's all... A whole bunch of crazy shit happens. It's all about masks. Masks within masks. And, um... (laughs) The King of Highburn releases her from that original deal. And... She goes back to the Spring Court with Tamlin. And then there's one of my favorite things to do at the end of a novel where... Especially if it's in first person. We switch perspectives. (laughs) <laughs> and Resand gets a chapter and come to find out they had gone to see a priestess and she is high lady of the night court, not his wife, not a consort, not any of that shit. She is a ruler equal to him. Mm-hmm. Which is not done. There Which are is no not high done. ladies. It is. I know. And to me, there was something because that that is the end of the book is her going back to the night court, that night court, I'm sorry, the spring court. And basically being like, LOL fam, <laughs> you let me exactly where I want to be. Um, but she, 
maybe that's an interesting jumping off point because that is I think the big the big kind of fuck you to Tamlin at the end is the 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 book is bookended because I think it's like the end of chapter two and the end of the last chapter the end of Favor's last chapter is Tamlin telling her there are no high ladies <laughs> and at the very end of the book she's just like I guess what up now like <laughs> right because when they're about to get married when they're about to get married Chess Tamlin so will I be high lady and he's like no that's yeah, not he how kind of laughs at her a little bit so it's very satisfying on multiple levels <laughs> yeah that that is how that book ends even though it's a major cliffhanger because like okay well they they are obviously too late to stop Highburn from doing anything with the cauldron and now Feyre is in enemy territory and there is gonna be a war like it's un- they were trying to circumvent the war but it, it's now unavoidable right so uh, how that shakes out in the third book, we are not going to talk about because I feel like that is not. I think part of why we chose to do that do that is because these two books are are like a pair in a mm-hmm. way. Like it, yes, it's a trilogy, but these these two books are they're like a mirror of each other in a weird way. Like we don't actually have to talk about. I've read the third and fourth books. We don't actually have to talk about those to get into what the series is really about i don't feel like yeah i i remember because I, I remember this book was long prophesied because i i remember <laughs> i i i finished the first book this was like over a year ago because i was still in my apartment and i finished that book loved it was shouting at everybody i knew about it and um i remember being like oh do you want to do the episode and we're like you were like rachel we can't we we cannot <laughs> do a meaningful episode on this until you've read the second book and now i get why because it it really is a a mirror to each other i was describing this in our production meeting it's a really really well done book about what happens aptly after happily ever after and uh what happens after the traditional story is is over because there's a lot of mythological source material going into these i know you mentioned well there's beauty and the beast which mm-hmm. is a classic there's the the legend of tamlin yes who was a fae um in celtic folklore but which is also just basically beauty and the beast and um in this book when we talk about journeying to sort of the underworld even though it, it we've learned it really isn't the underworld it it's it's hades and persephone Yes. Where she has to like be with him so much time out of out of a bigger block of time and all this other stuff, and there's there's a lot there's a lot of spinning plates as far as what Sarah J. Mass picks from relatively common knowledge about fairies, and uh, I think that's something that's interesting because. It sets up the reader to be in on stuff that Feyre isn't. Yes. Like, you were talking about the riddle. Because the whole time I'm like, is it love? Like, I'm not going to be mad if it is. But, like, is it is it love? Because that <laughs> that is so classic. And then there's the whole thing about Faye love their bargains. And it's all about wording. And bargains and bonds are really, like, what cements the relationships of so many characters. Whether it is bonds that they chose or, or that they chose or they just have. Like, you you, you can't... It, it's implied that she could refuse him, but you can't completely disregard a mating bond, for example. But, like, contracts like marriages, which are really the ultimate bargain um, between two people. <laughs> like, it's... In it's, fiction it's a whole and thing. in life. In fiction and in real life. It, it's, it's a whole thing. But I think kind of what sets this book apart and why i find i found it so compelling is like the world building is really tight especially in the second book we didn't get a ton of it in the first book until the very end just because like everyone's lying to her for most of the first part of the book Mm -hmm. because they have to because of the curse and all this other stuff but (laughs) it, it is a it's a book that even though it's magical and it's about fairies it deals with some like stunningly real shit Right. 
Um, I think agency, the concepts of agency and power are really at the core of these books, especially, I think, Feyre's agency mm-hmm. uh, and, and these the power dynamics that have been, that are in place due to some crazy stuff that happened in history. Like, historically, um, way before the beginning of this book, several hundred years before the book begins, humans were f- the slaves of the fairies. And the first war was fought to liberate them. And so they kicked all the they kicked all the humans out of Prithian, uh, ceded the bottom part of the island to the humans, and like have lived separately ever since to protect the humans' freedom. Mm-hmm. And like that is not something you get a lot of at the, in the first book, but becomes very important to understanding the current political situation in the second book um and like that's a very interesting like to have this bigger overarching conversation about like the politics of agency for groups of people contrasted directly with Feyre's individual struggle for agency mm-hmm. um, especially as a person who used to be in the first group and is now in the second group so like she has to she has to struggle not only with trying to to assert herself as, as her own person who can make her own decisions and take care of herself, but also she now has to struggle with she was in the oppressed class and has now switched over to the oppressing class. Mm-hmm. And, like, what does that mean? So there there are some suggestions, especially among her sisters and her family, like, in her direct dealings with them, that she's essentially done, like, a class betrayal. Yeah, by becoming she's essentially gay. a class traitor. Like... <laughs> Oh, but yeah, that that comes up with her sisters. That comes up with Tarkin, who's the High Lord of the Summer Court, um, who she has to dupe to get to get the book, and she feels really bad about that because the original High Lord of the Summer Court died under the mountain. So Tarkin is only like like Faye or immortal. Tarkin's only like eighty or something. Like he's relatively young compared to these High Lords like Tamlin and Re- and Resand, who are still relatively young but they're like hundreds of years old and he still has that like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed hope for peace that everyone around him is like oh he'll grow out of that um (laughs) but Feyre really kind of connects with him over that Mm -hmm. and she sees um especially she goes from court to court like in Valaris basically all fairies whether they're high fae or not are considered equal and a big part of that is because resand is um is not all high fey and that is thrown in his face a lot um but in tamlin's court and tarkin's court to an extent even though he is trying to uh rectify this uh low fey um, are expected to sort of not not be seen and not be heard and and all this other stuff, and Farah thinks that's whack, and Tarkin's <laughs> like I know, and um, it, that almost makes her betrayal of him hurt more for her because she knows that he deep down he's like he could actually be like a really good person and a really good high lord who could make a difference in a meaningful way that they connect over because there's um that's sort of the big picture the small picture that we get of that before in in closer to the beginning of the book when she's still and at, at the spring court is there's a um a type that tamlin calls in uh in classic classic high lord fashion where it's like she even tells him that she's like you don't need this stuff why why are you taking it from people who do need it um and he brushes her off because of course he does um but there's a a a water fairy who cannot pay she just can't she has nothing and tamlin tells her she's like he's like you know you have three you have three more days or we're we're gonna come get you the tax collector's gonna come, and Feyre gives her one of the necklaces he's he's gifted her, and says, "Here, go go pay it with this." And it's this huge deal, because not only because that is not done, but also because it is seen as 
undermining his authority, which um, we are told by many people, including uh, Lucian, who's on thin fucking ice with me, um, <laughs> that, oh, well, we, we can't, he's in a delicate position and we can't do that right now. And we have to provide, we have to provide a united front. And she's like, okay, but it's still wrong. And then later in the book, when they have to do the the heist of the first part of the book, the water spirits come and, like, save her and Amran because of that kindness. So it's like this, this act of compassion to one person, like, ripples out and comes back to her sevenfold in true magical fashion. But it is, that's a really good point that I think is explored pretty thoroughly in this book, is, is how economic and cultural divides and crossing those divides and how Feyre is in a unique position because she has so many different perspectives that she carries with her into her new, more powerful... She still doesn't really have agency in the beginning of the book, but what she has, she she is able to exert so other people don't have to live like she lived. Yeah. And even when she she doesn't believe there's anything good about herself and she believes that she's broken like that kindness is still there even if she may doubt why she's doing it she still does it i do want to talk about the idea of individual agency and like Farah's development over the course of the two books mm-hmm. because uh there's something really interesting that happens with the language in the book so when um, Feyre first comes to Prithian in book one, she is just wowed by how beautiful it is. Like, it's opulent. It's uh, the words. I wrote them all down, but it got to be too much work. But, like, it's sprawling. It's ornate. It's elegant. It's beautiful. Like, everything about it is is beautiful. The physical space that she exists in. But these fairies are disgusting and predatory and... Um, there's there's this language that's used to describe the Fae, which is almost universally the language that you would use to describe an apex predator, mm-hmm. right? So they're they're prowling and purring and you know growling. Tamlin does so much growling, um, yep. and uh, that that continues on for quite some time. I think at least till the end of the first book, it begins to wane a little bit, but, I mean, I think that language is still in place to a, a lesser degree, but still, still present in the remaining books, because it's a way to signal that these, these people, these fairies, are dangerous. They are capable of inflicting grievous harm. So, um, I think that language serves that purpose, but especially in the first book, it kind of places Feyre into um, this position where she is, if they are the predators, then she is basically a prey animal. Um, and she she's kind of stuck in this cognitive dissonance where, like, the Fey are animals, but also humans are below the Fey in some respects, but the Fey are kind of, what like, she really struggles with this this false dichotomy I think in her head as she tries to make peace with this and at the end of the first book I think she finally realizes she kind of rises above that dichotomy and calls herself a huntress and recognizes what she is which is that she has power and agency among these people and and the Fae. So that's a really interesting thing that happens over time. And Feyre undergoes, I think, just an extreme amount of cognitive dissonance in these two books. I don't know if you noticed that. Mm-hmm. But the the number of, like, ellipses <laughs> that, that, are, <laughs> that exist, that really signals, like, okay, Feyre is really struggling to make two disparate things make sense in her head. Or how many sentences have a but or a yet clause or even better, a but, a yet, and an ellipses. Mm-hmm. So, That's how you know how hard the brain is worrying. Yeah. So, um, I think that is pretty well done. Like, there are active, like, I can point to a place in the text just because they're ellipses, and I'm like, Farah is struggling here. <laughs> 
Um, and, and so I kind of like that in a weird way. Like, it's very, I mean, maybe it's not, like, the most technically subtle way to, to bring that across, but, like, it was effective. And there's a lot about the book. Some of the joy of the book is, like, being, it is in first person, and you as a reader are like, okay, come on, like, get it together. Like, you can see before the characters do what's going on, but not so much so that it's predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is something satisfying about, th- there's a nice smirky, like, I know what's happening here <laughs> type situation. <laughs> like with Resand especially. Um, and my favorite moment that we talk about all the time is um, Fair and Resand have been out training. They have had a narrow, they've had a very stressful encounter um, Lucian has basically tracked Feyre into the middle, this is in the middle of the second book, and is like, I know that you said that you weren't coming back and to just forget about it, but we have decided that you cannot make your own decisions and you're obviously in some sort of thrall, so Feyre, it's time to come home and, uh, come on, let's go. We're taking you back to the Supreme Court. And Feyre is like, um, excuse? Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Farrah and Rhysand, like, have this confrontation with them, and it's, and they escape, or, or best them, or whatever, and they go and stay at this inn, and, and Rhysand, like, it's, it's the classic, so we talk a little bit about how many tropes this has that we enjoy, so this has the classic, oh no, and there's only one bed left at this inn, whatever. I literally (laughs) had to put the book down and do, like, a lap around my house, because I knew... (laughs) She was coming for my whole existence. Because that's my favorite trope. And I abuse it so much in everything I do. Then I'm just (laughs) like, this this is the comeuppance. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, oh, no. And so they have, they're in very tight quarters. They have to change their clothes because they got wet outside. Like, it's classic. Just classic. (laughs) Pinnacle, pinnacle of that trope. Absolute pinnacle. Perfect Perfect execution. Mm-hmm. Textbook. It's I give a it a textbook. 10. <laughs> and they're, they're sitting on the bed across from each other eating. And they're, they're having a very um, vulnerable conversation about how they feel about each other. Um, and there's been a lot. There's been escalating tension between them. Um, part of the escalating tension is when they went to the summer court. Pharaoh was very flirtatious with Tarkin. And it was like led to some I think jealousy on uh there's jealousy on both parties because Rhysand snuggled up to Tarkin's sister so they're both kind of angry with each other mm-hmm. <laughs> about all that and they're like maybe they don't care about me so they have this really vulnerable conversation and Rhysand essentially says I would tear apart the world for you and Feyre is like okay and then <laughs> but for real though <laughs> And I'm like, that, and then, and then he's basically like, well, what do you want from me? And she's like, I could use a distraction and some fun. And I just, like, (laughs) mentally ran an exasperated hand down my face. Like, that is not. (laughs) That's not the answer. You were having a, you were having a real moment and you can't, you can't do this. You know he doesn't do this with anybody else. Like, oh, it was so bad. It was so frustrating. It's like, you can't come in here with that. Like, how oblivious do you have to be to have someone say, like, I would tear apart the world for you. And you're like, let's just have casual sex. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, the whole time I'm just like, Farah, how how deep does, does this denial run at this point? At this point, we're like three quarters of the way through the book. I'm like, you're just in denial, homie. Like, th- this is just it. And she's like, why can't he just see past the, the, can he see past the charade? And I'm like, why don't you just, why are you doing, so anyway, it ends up, they end up having a confrontation about the fact that Recent has been hiding the fact that they're mates this whole time, the whole second, like he's known since the very end of the first book. Mm-hmm. And she's real mad about it, which is understandable. But he's also like, I didn't want to feel like, I didn't want to make you feel like you had to deal with it because you're also dealing with like eight thousand other things and you were in love with another guy and i was trying to be respectful even though it really sucked 
and then and they make up, but and then they and then they make up and they're mates and it's great. But I I I really like to me that whole sequence of him like okay here's the reason I did everything I did at every point that we've met, and like at the end of it I was like oh shit you're actually a really <laughs> good guy, and like we know this we've known this the whole book but that really kind of like cements it cemented it for me because it was this whole thing of like. What separated him from the Tamlin situation we come in on in the beginning of the book. With Resand, regardless of the fact that he could claim it, there's no ownership on his part. He has no delusions that they're like that she belongs to him in in that specific way that people think people can belong to other people. And I remember just kind of being like, Oh, that's gonna be new for her. Because <laughs> it's it's this whole thing, and and I think there's a way. I think it can exist in fiction in the real world where, like, the meaning behind that sentiment is really we belong together, like we yes. we belong to each other, and like that's the healthy version of that, and that's what Reese and Feyre get to. But there's the converse of it. There's the other side of the coin, which is like you belong to me, mm-hmm. not the not necessarily the other way around because that's the whole thing with tamlin if they treated tamlin the way he he treats her like that would not fly that would no. not be okay that and it, and it wouldn't be okay obviously but like within the narrative within the political and cultural norms that she has to exist in like she they, they, people would think she was crazy mm-hmm. and i mean they'd be right but you know but th- it's the fact that there is that 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 that's it's a double standard essentially yeah it's a double standard and and the fact that reese doesn't buy into that in a lot of ways i i think is what really kind of helps her separate okay what do i believe about this because there's the whole thing i very briefly mentioned this but there's the whole thing where she's thinking about tamlin and she questions did i really love him or it, it maybe it isn't even that. It's, okay, how did I love him? Because that's a thing Reese talks about when they're having their initial visits is how he kind of phrases it like, oh, love is a poison. But there's never a question that, like, that they, that Tamlin and Feyre were in love. It's, okay, how were you in love? Was it actually good for both of you? And... All that kind of stuff. And and I think that was something that um, I, meant, I mentioned this in the production meeting. It's an actual love triangle. It's yes. not two guys fighting over one girl who's vaguely di- disinterested in both of them or only has one strong preference. It's an actual love triangle where there's two legitimate love interests and she actually has to be like, she has to parse her, not only her own feelings for both of these people, but their feelings for her and what's good for her and all this other stuff. And yeah, that takes a lot longer and it's a lot harder to pull off. But when it's done really well, it's so fucking satisfying. Like, it's so good. And I I just, it made me so happy when we when it, she got to the part where she, because there's this whole ceremony to accept the mating bond where you have to make f- the, the, the woman makes food and um presents it to her mate and that's seen as an as some acceptance everything is kind of chalked up to the beasts we came from and stuff like that um whatever i don't really care it's 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 all good (laughs) um but she talks about how maybe she didn't think of it as love because love is too isn't big enough of a word and I think that is an interesting progression from where we get to at the end of the first book, where she has to figure out, okay, what does love mean and what does it mean to me? And now she's like, okay, what's beyond that? What mm-hmm. is bigger than that? And I like that it's not necessarily treated like her first relationship was it ended up being bad because it ended up being toxic. But it, it, the fact that it's never in question that there was a real connection there and there was real feeling there and that that was real. Regardless of whether she's now with who she is quote unquote meant to be with, that 
old relationship is never swept under the rug. And I went in a way that I think can be easy to do when you're focusing on that kind of narrative. Sarah J. Mass does a really cool thing over the whole course of her books that I, I admire uh, because it is difficult where she has really meaningful consequences for things. And sometimes those consequences aren't necessarily physical or political or anything like that. Sometimes they're just like, they were having to deal with her cognitive dissonance and being like, oh, I really hurt this person because I'm scared of my own feelings and stuff like that. But it's all, like, addressed. And and I think the other thing that we wanted to talk about, and then we can probably wrap up, because I think we covered everything pretty good, um, is the sense that, like, the that you brought up during the production meeting where these characters undergo serious trauma and it's not just over when it's over. Like, in some books, people just move on after having, like, a really horrible time. Mm-hmm. And both Feyre and Resand went through really terrible things under um, the mountain. Resand basically was only Amarantha's consort to protect other people. He didn't actually want to be doing any of, of that consort of those consort activities Mm -hmm. and Farah, like she got beat up she had to go through these terrible trials she had to to kill people in order to save the the country and like she has all of that on her conscience and she doesn't just move on from that and reese doesn't move on from what he did either um they have to deal yeah um i think it is an important facet of the book that I and I love that so much time is dedicated to it uh, not, not not only in the like how many pages are dedicated to it but there's like an extended length of time within the narrative where Feyre is continuously dealing with the idea that she is broken beyond repair and she kind of deals with stuff like she takes stuff sitting down for the longest time because of that and I think what what one of the turning points where she kind of realizes what unites her and Reese's continuing issues with what happened to them. Because recently said, like, he was horrifically sexually abused for the long, like, 50 years straight with no break. And he had to do all these horrible things. And she's had to do all these horrible things. And one thing that I kind of like even though Feyre kind of is like, oh, well, look at what happened to him and how can I complain about me and stuff like that, which is unfortunately a very normal reaction people have to that kind of stuff. Within the overarching narrative, it's not a competition. There's no person or factor that tries to be like, my trauma is more important than yours. At the end of the day, they kind of realize they've come out the same where they think of themselves as these shattered people that no one will want to deal with. There's no question of somebody, like, accepting them and helping them work through it. Whoever is with them will only be dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because for Feyre, that's kind of what Tamlin was doing, even though he wasn't dealing with it. Yeah. He was ignoring it, and he was ignoring his own trauma. Like, and that's explicit. Like, that is that is that is just text. <laughs> that is not subtext. That is basically... Feyre feeling like she couldn't, she had no voice. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't talk to anyone about it. And then finally she meets somebody who has some common experience. But there's the classic scene where she's talking about Reese, but really she's talking about herself. When she talks about no one wanting to deal with that mess. Mm-hmm. And that's a big turning point in their relationship but uh, yeah I, I really like how this book doesn't shy away from the actual consequences of having to do horrible things even if it's for a good reason even if it's for the right reason yeah it's still it's never it's never portrayed as like uh like and and there's a point and the thing one of the things that reese has to deal with is that as a result of some political stuff uh, and that he was involved in while he was under the mountain with Amarantha is that a bunch of summer court children were slaughtered and Mm. he has that on his conscience and it's a big it's not it's kind of a political sticking point as well but like he also sees it as a personal failure um 
that he that he allowed that to happen so i think he carries a lot of the weight of the things that amarantha did because he was so directly involved in her orders and her machinations so Mm -hmm. i mean it's really it's really hard but i think it's really it's very satisfying to see them deal with it and it not just go away because that part of the plot is over and it's no longer useful it becomes a very satisfying like character development piece and and like it is involved in both it as an obstacle to Feyre and Rhysand coming together and it's also a point of of connection because they they have to work through it and are able to work through it together yeah yeah I think that is uh, probably the most satisfying part of watching their relationship develop over the course of the book is seeing them sort of weave themselves into each other's lives mm-hmm. in a way that is more difficult and eventually more meaningful than what we saw in the first book. And I keep saying this, but I think it bears repeating it. That is not to say that the real, that in the initial way she was introduced to Prithian and to the kind of love that she had with Talon was a capital B bad. And that it was wrong and all this other stuff. I think I think one of the things I really, really like about this book that is um, important, even when we're doing one of our favorite genres, which is fairy tale retellings, um, there is, there's nuance and heaviness to things that in, in a genre that is, that or was, it's not so much anymore because we all know better. But that was kind of touted as being a bit, a bit hollow and frivolous and all this other stuff. Which, if it was, who gives a fuck? But um, <laughs> we don't. But the the fact that there is there, like the writing itself and the and the structure and everything is so good. It still makes everything feel, even with the tropes, even with the fact that some stuff is pretty telegraphed. None of that takes away from the enjoyment of the book. Like I said in the beginning of the episode, the highest compliment I can give in this time of my life where I'm, I still struggle to focus on a piece of writing on a page, I fucking read this book from cover to cover and I loved it. And I didn't want it to end. And that's kind of like my hashtag review <laughs> of this book is it, it, it is so engaging and it pays off on a lot of things in a way that is complex, nuanced, painful at times. Like the whole scene where they're walking through the, um, the art district and she basically confesses that she's been having this, the technical term for it is suicidal ideation. But she's kind of like, okay, well maybe it would have been a mercy to be ended. I think is what she thinks and Reese shuts that shit down right away and we realize later on that it's because he knows what that feels like there's something really concrete and grounded about all the characters even though they're fairies one of them is from (laughs) another dimension (laughs) and she's like speaks dead languages and she can like make people believe they're drowning there's some crazy shit in this book but they're all just people. And that's really, really cool to see in in a, in a genre of the fantastical. Is that there is still that, that anchoring of something that is relatable. Even when we kind of uh, do the, 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 the delicate feminine chortle. About, oh, but the answer is love. Okay, robots, thank you for joining us on this episode of Remedial Studies. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation about A Court of Thorns and Roses and A Court of Mist and Fury. I know that we uh, enjoyed it, so (laughs) perhaps it doesn't really matter how you felt, but it does, sort of. Anyway, um... We're going to be branching out in a different direction next time, and we're actually going to try our first collection of poetry. 
Uh, we're going to do The Princess Saves Herself in this one by uh, Amanda Lovelace. So uh, I'm excited to kind of branch out into a genre we haven't done in the past two years. So um, very oh, excited about that. it has been that. two years. It, we're getting there. Oh my we're god, it's going to be two years in October. Yeah. The fuck? Okay. Uh, I'll schedule my crisis about that for later this week. Um. <laughs> you want to do socials in the meantime? I'll do socials because that's easy. Um, we have many, many social media outlets. Uh, the easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter, at Remedial Studies. We have an Instagram, also at Remedial Studies. We have a Tumblr, uh, where I, uh, this afternoon, will be going back and cross-posting a bunch of episodes. Um, remedial studies podcast.tumblr.com. We have a Gmail where you can send us a good old fashioned email, which uh, we will love you forever. Will we tear the world apart, of, of, apart for you? Uh, probably not, but we know you would never ask us that. It's remedial, yeah, remedial studies podcast at gmail.com. You will not see us, we will not see you, but you will hear us next time. Bye, robots. Bye, robots. <laughs>